You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views and the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites. It is brought to you by Solaray Energy, designing and installing solar and storage solutions so you can run your electric vehicle the smart way on solar. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the founder and editor of The Driven and of Renew Economy. And um, joining me this week is the New South Wales Energy and Environment Minister, Matt Keane. Um, Matt, thank you very much for joining this podcast. Giles, thank you for having me. Just over a year ago, you appeared on our sister broadcast or brother broadcast, the Energy Insiders podcast, and revealed, um, to my great excitement, that um, you are now the proud owner or driver of a Tesla Model 3. And in doing so, you became the first federal or state minister, in fact, possibly the first federal or state parliamentarian to have an EV as their um, government or parliamentary car. Just take us back to then, why did you choose an EV and, and why the Model 3 in particular? Well, Giles, um, I think at the time, the lease on my existing ministerial vehicle had come to the end of its time. Uh, that uh, and, was, and, and I think that was an, a, a, an, an almighty Toyota Kluger, wasn't it? It, it was a gas-guzzling Kluger. Uh, you know, those things are so thirsty. And um, I just said to the team, let's just check out um, what the cost difference would be between the Kluger and an EV. Let's let's just go see if it makes sense. And the guys came back to me sort of saying, oh, it'll never stack up. Sure enough, it was at the same price point and the running costs were virtually nothing. So I thought, well, as the Minister for the Environment, um, I should um, live the portfolio. And I said, let's go get an EV. And I think we went to trial one down at Tesla. And I got into it. And as soon as I put my... Um, you know, foot to the floor, I could feel my face being pulled back. And I'm like, I've got to have this car because it's just fun to drive. And, you know, I, I haven't regretted the decision for one second since I got it. It's been awesome. So did you get a, you got a Model 3. Did you get like a standard range plus or did you get a long range or a performance? Well, unfortunately for ministers, we had to ensure, we have to ensure that the vehicle is below the luxury car tax. But so I got the basic model, but I mean, it's it's just a great performing vehicle. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, I live about 30 k's. My, my seat is 30 k's from the city. So I can do three or four round trips on one charge. Um, so range anxiety is not an issue for me. Um, it's very cheap to run. It's quiet and it's really fun to drive. So it's it's been a terrific experience. And I think, I think that's the point that I'd, I'd make to your listeners that, um, now that EVs, uh, the product is uh, even better than an internal combustion engine vehicle. And uh, as government rolls out uh, support to deal with things like range anxiety and provides incentives to lower the upfront cost um, and uh, to deal with some of the other challenges, uh, why wouldn't you go on EV? Because it's a better product. Yeah, we'll get to your incentives that you've um, rolled out, um, and congratulations for doing so. But just to first, take us back to the um, to the car. So, are you taking it away on weekends? What are you using it for? Your private purposes? Is is it just is it just a um, a work vehicle to and from the um, the parliamentary building, or do you also get to use it privately? Yeah, it's it's a work vehicle, and it's also my private vehicle. Unfortunately, uh, in lockdown here, we don't get to travel too far. I can I'm sort of confined to my local government area of Hornsby, which. Fortunately, it's quite a big area, so we do take it out on weekends. Um, but 
Um, look, as soon as things open up, we, we definitely are looking to use the EV to see more of New South Wales and travel around a bit. Um, uh, you know, they're starting to pop up uh, around the place, a, a charging network, which enables you to travel further distances. And that's only going to get improve, uh, particularly as the government rolls out its fast charging network. Oh, well, the government's that, that um, and that's you indeed. Um, it's, it's quite funny up here. We're seeing a lot more, lot, lot more Tesla Model 3s as well. And we used to wave to each other, but now there's so many, we actually sort of stopped doing that. So um, that's kind of a bit strange. So um, have you managed to convince anybody else in Parliament to, um, in your government to, to get one? I, I, I do know that Katie Allen, the federal Liberal MP, has got a Model 3, and she seems equally delighted with it as, as you were or as you are. Um, anybody else you've managed to convince or are they asking about it? Everyone is absolutely fascinated by it. So they all want to have a go. They all want to check it out. I, uh, the treasurer, Dominic Perrottet, lives in the Hornsby LGA. So we've been catching up, doing a bit of walking and whatnot. And um, he actually asked if he could have a drive the other day. And um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to get him in trouble, but it's fair to say that he enjoyed the very fast experience. And um, he said to me, I'd love to get one of these things. So I'm doing a bit of environmental or EV diplomacy with my colleagues at the moment. And hopefully, hopefully they can see that they're fun vehicles, they're cost effective um, and, and they're a great product. I, I know the Attorney General, Mark Speakman, he's, he's got a hybrid and he's looking to upgrade. He came to see me the other day about a, a Tesla Model 3. So I encouraged him to do it. So I think a number of the colleagues are starting to think in that space. And me breaking down the barrier hopefully we'll see the floodgates now open and a lot of my colleagues look uh, to an ev for their next vehicle and what about andrew constance he's the transport minister and helped um, um and you work with him to design the sort of ev policy that you've got in place yeah he's a massive supporter of evs i mean he was one of the real drivers for the uh, ev policy um he's transforming the bus fee fleet so he's already you know, said that the 8,000 buses in New South Wales are going to be converted to EVs. He's he's a huge fan when it comes to EVs. I know he's got, he's the member for Bega, so he has to travel some long distances, um, but he's certainly got, uh, a, you know, looking at an EV for his next purchase. He's, he's one of the more progressive and dynamic members in this space. So, mm. yeah, I, 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 he keeps hassling me about driving mine. So I said, go, go and get your own, Andrew. <laughs> Stop stealing mine. <laughs> so um, this policy that you put into place, look, it's actually quite impressive. Um, I mean, I should be probably sort of asking critical questions about it. Sort of $3,000 rebate for cars under 68750 I think, stamp duty and uh, exemption for EVs under about $78,000. And you're also putting in a fair bit of money to have a whole bunch of um, fast charging stations around the state because um, you and I, we both drive Teslas, so we're actually pretty well off in terms of charging stations, but for others, it's not so generous. It's not so well equipped, is it? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. I mean, range anxiety is a huge barrier for people uh, moving towards an EV, and um, we want to break that down. So we're putting $131 million on the table uh, to roll out EV charging infrastructure across New South Wales. What we want to do is, in densely populated areas, have an ultra-fast charger no further than five kilometres uh, from people's homes. So, you know, we'll have a huge network of them across the, the greater Sydney area. Um, for those people living in the regions, we're going to be rolling out uh, tourism 
uh, sort of charges to encourage people or incentivize people to go out to wineries and national parks out in the bush. But we'll also be creating EV superhighways whereby we'll have ultra fast charging uh, network uh, across our uh, freeways and highways right across the state. Mm. Mm. So going back to what you sort of talked about before, I mean, it's interesting about this rebate. It suddenly makes, um, I mean, I think the Tesla Model 3 is probably available now, including your rebate for about more than ten or $12,000 cheaper than what I paid for it two years ago, um, which in one way is frustrating, but in another way is really, really good because it shows that the cost of EVs is coming down and with the rebates, that's helping it. You talked about performance, I guess in that mid-range sort of fifty to 70000 area, that's where EVs are really gaining traction and also more expensive expensive models, how do we get their EVs into the market? Because, you know, that's still that's still not the mass market, is it? It's got to get down to the twenty, thirty, and forty thousand dollar range. Well that's exactly right. I mean the cheapest EV on the market at the moment is uh, the MG. Uh, shout out to the guys at MG, and their price point's about 42000 So um, with the government incentives, we can uh, the, the, the suite of incentives that we've announced, that'll knock another $5,300 off that. Um, so you're starting to get down around the mid-30,000s, uh, which makes it very competitive with internal combustion engines. Obviously, there's a little way to go, but we know that EVs continue to come down the cost curve. And as they scale up, or the manufacturing of them scales up, that will tumble even further. So um, we, th we think we've got the, a suite of policies in place to um, lower that upfront cost and really make it attractive for people to consider. But one of the things that we'll do um, as we get more coming into the market, um, as we roll out um, incentives for fleet purchases and things like that, which we've sort of flagged, uh, that will catalyze the secondhand EV market and that will mean that the price point for entry is even lower. So that's what we're focused on. Our aim is to have 50% of all new vehicle sales in New South Wales being EVs by 2030. And, um, you know, we've got a target of... Uh, net zero emissions by 2050. If the average life of internal combustion engine vehicle is 15 years on the road, that means you're going to have to have um, them phased out by 2035 or new vehicle sales being uh, internal combustion vehicles phased out by 2035. So we've got a long way to go. I'm confident that uh, we've got the policy settings in place to really drive a big uptake, but uh, we need to do some more things as we head towards the end of this decade if we're going to hit net zero emissions in the transport sector by 2050. Yeah. I mean, the um, the 50% um, target was actually one of lab federal Labor's policy um, in, in the last federal election in 2019, I think it was, if I get my years right. It was sort of described as ridiculous policy, you know, ruin the weekend, steal your utes and stuff like that. Um, it doesn't sound so much like a stretch target now. No, I don't think so. I mean, that seemed quite radical at the time. Um, people couldn't get their heads around uh, this revolution that's coming. But, you know, since the 2019 election, there's been a lot of change and momentum for uh, change when it comes to reducing our carbon footprint. I mean, we've seen the election of a Biden administration in the United States, um, you know, casting aside the, you know, climate denying or anti-science Trump administration. Um, you know, as a result of that, now 70% of Australia's two-way trade is with countries that have committed to net zero emissions and 50% of the world's GDP is now generated in jurisdictions that have committed to net zero emissions. So the momentum for uh, lowering our carbon footprint is getting stronger. And, uh, you know, that's being felt right across the economy, including in the transport sector. So that 50% target which seemed radical two years ago, looks, that looks like it's not going far enough today.
Yeah, yeah. You've got rebates, and there's rebates also in Victoria, and I think a little bit in South Australia now. Wouldn't it just be simpler to actually sort of price pollution and, and actually have um, vehicle emission standards in Australia? We're probably one of the few countries now that don't have it. New Zealand's another one, but they're in the process of introducing what's known as a fee-bate scheme. Is that something that New South Wales could do unilaterally, or does it have to be part of a national plan? And if that's the case, what chances are there of that happening? Giles, I'll give you a bit of a scoop. I actually looked at whether or not I could introduce tailpipe emissions here in New South Wales so that we could, um, uh, you know, not only provide carrots on one side, but have a stick on the other to really drive the uptake. Uh, it, it, the advice from the uh, New South Wales Crown Solicitor was that uh, we didn't have the constitutional powers to put those measures in place uh, to, uh, I guess, you know, price pollution uh, when it comes to vehicles. Uh, so uh, it was beyond outside our jurisdictional powers. Um, but, you know, that is something that I think we definitely should look at. We should be looking at using all the levers we have available to us. But we need to do that within the confines of the political reality that we live in. Um, you know, carbon taxes and things like that are enormously controversial. Governments have uh, fallen as a result of that. So what we've tried to do in New South Wales is look at the real politic, uh, look at the constraints that we have and try and act within it to drive the agenda forward. And that's what we've done here in New South Wales. We're finding a way through. It may not be the perfect suite of policies, but it's certainly pretty damn good. It is good. It is good. But um, the sort of vehicle emission strategy would, uh, a standard would be, um, look, it would be extremely helpful. I remember Josh Frydenberg actually floated this idea several years ago when he was Federal Environment Minister, got slapped down by a headline in the Daily Telegraph, presented to the media a couple of days later and said, look, you saw the headline, I can't do it. Is, are people still terrified of the Murdoch media or is there ideological constraints still within the Federal Party that would stop that from happening? Because it just seems so obvious. Well, I think it's unfair to blame the Murdoch media and even the Murdoch media are shifting their position when it comes to climate change. And that's a, that's a good thing. There are a lot of people that uh, do take their lead from, um, you know, that, that those news sources. And we need to make sure we don't leave anyone behind. We need to ensure that we help everyone understand the real opportunities for our nation in embracing um, you know, action on climate change. Um, so I welcome the Murdoch media's position uh, changing on this. Um, do I think tailpipe emissions standards and carbon taxes, uh, you know, could be introduced easily? No, I don't. I think, you know, that there are still people suffering from PTSD that tried to do it in the past. <laughs> what I do think we need to do, though, Giles, is find uh, ways forward uh, in this very complex and contested area of public policy where there are a lot of vested interests. And that's that's the basis on which we've designed our policies in New South Wales. And I think, you know, future governments, whatever political colour they might be, will take these things further and build on them. But right now, I'm not going to sit there try, waiting to make the perfect the enemy of the good. I want to crack on with it. I want to start making sure that New South Wales is well positioned to take advantage of these huge opportunities that are emerging because of these global megatrends uh, leading to a low carbon economy.
Well, it seems that eventually we won't have any choice because most other countries will be banning petrol and diesel cars by 2030 or 2035, or in the case of Norway, by 2025. And some companies, car manufacturers, are not going to be making petrol and diesel vehicles anyway, so we better get on with it. Um, well, well, that's exactly right. I mean, the world's right-hand drive markets are moving very quickly away from internal combustion engines. So pretty quickly, uh, we won't be able to do anything other than take electric vehicles into the Australian market. And my job is to make sure that we're ready for them, uh, that we lower the price point that we have the uh, we deal with range anxiety by making sure we've got the infrastructure available and uh, we enable people to have a greater choice of vehicles and that's exactly what our policy settings are designed to achieve yeah just lastly on that fee bait uh, the rebate sorry um, it came into effect ostensibly from september the first the legislation hasn't been enacted because parliament cannot sit at the moment due to covid do you have any sense of what the response has been from the market i mean do you get any sense that sort of sales have increased since the first of september i mean i guess there's no way of registering and doing other things at the moment yeah, there's been good uptake of electric vehicles since September when those incentives kicked in. And I've made it very clear that we'll be honouring uh, those commitments. We're just waiting for the parliament to sit so we can, we, we can legislate. But all the rebates and incentives that we flagged would be available for purchases of electric vehicles under 78000 and under 68000 uh, will be paid retrospectively. But we've just got to put the legislation through the parliament. Hopefully parliament will be returning in October and we'll be able to do that and get that money uh, back into people's pockets as soon as possible. Let's turn to um, your other policies there, the energy policy, because if you're going to have electric vehicles, then you really need a decarbonised grid to maximise the emissions reductions. And that seems to be what you're intending to do with your infrastructure roadmap that's largely focused on the creation of renewable energy zones. I think there's at least five of them so far, and if you throw in an offshore wind zone, which might um, come up one day, um, then you've got six. Um, you've been overwhelmed by the response to this. Was that such a surprise? No, it wasn't a surprise. I mean, the world is moving very quickly in this direction. Uh, capital is looking for uh, sustainable investment opportunities um, uh, that are going to ensure that the terminal value of assets is there um, in the long term and they're, they're going to be able to get a return on their investments. So capital's moved, businesses moved, um, uh, the community's moved. The only ones uh, lagging was the, the government. And um, the policy settings that were put in place, I think, have put the government uh, in the position to really turbocharge investment. And we're seeing it played out here in New South Wales. Those five renewable energy zones were already put out two for expressions of interest. And uh, recently, the New England Renewable Energy Zone closed, and we called for eight gigawatts. Um, we're looking for eight gigawatts in that renewable energy zone. We were oversubscribed four times. We got 34 gigawatts of um, uh, proposed developments, 180 proponents putting forward ideas, um, you know, worth about $40 billion worth of investment. I mean, that's just huge. So, um, you know, momentum is growing in this. It's only moving in one direction. And I want to make sure that New South Wales stands to benefit from that huge investment that will come into, that is looking for safe havens, those, you know, thousands of jobs that will be created on the back of this and uh, that will ultimately deliver cheaper, reliable and cleaner energy to everyone across the state. One of the benefits of having this infrastructure roadmap is that you do actually have a plan, which is great. Um, one of the criticisms of it is that it kind of 
by its nature becomes more or less sort of centrally controlled. You kind of turn on the tap or turn off the tap as you roll out these renewable energy zones and seek a certain amount of wind and solar and storage um, capacity. Does that concern you? Are you worried about the feedback there or is that just going to be, have to be the nature of actually having a roadmap? No, this is a big undertaking. In the next 15 years, four of our existing coal-fired power stations will come to the end of their lives. And what we don't want to see is a fragmented approach to the replacement of that. So um, we need to provide the private sector and uh, investors with the certainty they're going to need to lay down their capital to rebuild the electricity uh, grid uh, in something that took previously 30 years to build. We're going to have to do it in 15, Giles. Um, so I'm not going to apologise for giving everyone certainty around the transmission infrastructure that needs to be built. I'm not going to apologise for giving people certainty knowing that uh, their investments are not going to be curtailed. That's exactly what we've done. Um, and the investment community has responded. I mean, having the New England Renewable Energy subs uh, Zone oversubscribed four times um, is a huge vote of confidence in our roadmap and our plans uh, because what we've done is ensure that the cost of capital for their projects will be lowered and that will flow through to lower prices for consumers. So uh, we think we've got the policy settings exactly right and the market suggests that's, that's what they think as well. The United Nations and many scientists have made it very clear that really to reach 1.5 degrees and get the best chance of sort of avoiding the worst parts of climate change, we need to stop coal generation by 2030. When asked recently if that was possible in New South Wales, you said yes. Is that something that you hope to do? And, and how do you do that? Because um, by 2030, that's not so far away. Well, we know that um, of the five power stations that currently supply the bulk of our energy in New South Wales. Uh, three of them are expected to be uh, at the end of their technical lives by 2030, okay? Uh, when I designed the roadmap, I worked on the basis that they could all be out of commission by 2030. Uh, nothing to do with climate change, everything to do with the economics of these. Uh, so we went big, we basically uh, legislated the replacement infrastructure um, uh, big enough to replace all the existing infrastructure by 2030. So if we needed to, we could operate. Uh, I'm, I'm confident that we could operate uh, completely with renewables and firming by 2030. I'm not sure that we will need that, but uh, we've put an insurance policy in place to ensure that if those coal-fired power stations did come out far earlier than anyone anticipates, that we could still continue to maintain our electricity system in a reliable way and very cheaply, uh, also delivering clean energy. One of the bigger risks, I suppose, is not that some of the coal generators may stay longer than they're welcome, that they might actually sort of exit before you, um, before you want them to. Um, how do you avoid that situation? Well, this is, this is the thing that's keeping me up at night, Giles. I mean, the reality is you look at AGL recently, they posted a $3 billion loss this year in their financial reporting season. And that's because their coal generators are losing money hand over fist, uh, largely due to the fact that they can't compete with um, the cheap energy provided from renewables. So um, you, if your directors uh, or you know shareholders looking at those assets and seeing your cash being burned, um, it's, a, it's a reality that you, know, you could be wanting to exit uh, from those assets sooner rather than later. Now, 
we need a system in place that will ensure that we do manage the transition uh, in an orderly fashion. We've got a mechanism to build the new infrastructure to replace the existing stuff being the roadmap. But what we don't have is a mechanism to uh, safely uh, manage the exit of existing infrastructure in line with our development pathway for the new stuff. And that's what we're working on with Minister Taylor and the Energy Security Board. I've in fact got the board meeting tomorrow to talk about these issues. Uh, but let me be very clear, we can't have existing infrastructure falling out before the new stuff is built. We can uh, dial up or speed up the build of the um, renewable infrastructure. We've got the capacity to do that. But I need to make sure that it comes on before existing power stations exit the market. Otherwise, there's going to be much higher prices and a less reliable system. The Energy Security Board proposals, though, have not gone down well with the industry, and they don't even seem to have gone down very well with your government or the Victorian government. Um, we're talking about what's been dubbed coal keeper here in the nature of the capacity mechanism, um, basically results in payments. Um, most of the critics say to coal generators that are not needed. Now, I understand the need for sort of bilateral deals with coal generators, maybe ensure they're staying on or some sort of organised exit. If the ESB proposal, and, and this is the one that's favoured by um, uh, Minister Taylor, is not acceptable to Victoria and New South Wales, what is the way forward? What would you like to see out of the state minister's meeting tomorrow? Well, I think Minister Taylor and the ESB have identified the right problem that we need to solve, and that is how do you keep existing infrastructure in long enough to ensure that the replacement kit is built? So that's, in my view, the right policy uh, that we need to, to put in place. Uh, but what we don't want to do is extend the life of existing coal. Um, I've been very clear about that to Minister Taylor, as has Minister D'Ambrosio. Um, look, what, what I'd say is that New South Wales believes that the best way to deal with uh, existing coal would be uh, to negotiate bespoke arrangements with the different operators of those assets you know, being Origin, AGL, Energy Australia and Delta Energy in New South Wales. Um, that's what our preference would be. Um, that way we have more control as to um, uh, when we could manage those exits uh, in a responsible way than we currently have. Um, I think Minister Taylor is uh, genuinely uh, uh, trying to work through those issues. I don't believe that the accusations being thrown at him around coal keeper are fair or accurate. It is a serious policy problem that we need to solve. And I'm confident in the way that we've engaged constructively with Kerry Schott and Minister Taylor that we can get something that will manage that exit of those existing assets in a way that doesn't prolong them. But if you're doing bilateral negotiations with the individual generating companies, then where does that leave a federal policy? And what should that federal policy be focused on? Is that encouraging the new technologies to come in to provide that dispatchable generation? Well, we've got a policy in place that will encourage the new technologies to come in to provide that dispatchable generation. Our energy roadmap does include, in addition to Snowy 2.0, two gigawatts of long duration storage to be built in New South Wales by 2030. That's in line with what AEMO says that we're going to need to ensure that we keep the lights on and prices low. So we've got the plan to build the new infrastructure. What we need to do is ensure that it's coordinated with the exit of existing infrastructure. And that's exactly what Mr. Taylor and the Energy Security Board are trying to solve. So we'll work through those issues tomorrow um, at the National Energy Minister's meeting. And I'm confident we're going to get a great result for the people of New South Wales. It's going to protect our environment and lower our power bills. 
are they going to have to start over or are they going to sort of work to adapt what they've already put forward? No, I think that they, they can accommodate the concerns that New South Wales and Victoria has already raised. I think we all want the same thing, and that's the orderly transition uh, from uh, older technology to newer technology. So you're hopeful that we actually might have a properly functioning federal market rather than the fragmented market that um, that you spoke of earlier? I think there's certainly a pathway to achieve that. What we don't want to see here in New South Wales is consumers having to pay twice, pay twice for the dispatchable kit that we're going to get under the roadmap and also uh, the capacity uh, market that uh, the federal minister's talking about. Um, we're, we're looking at, at a range of uh, ways to ensure that that's the case, that New South Wales consumers don't have to pay any more than they need to. We can do that through opt-in or opt-out models. We can do that through, uh, you know, a trigger of the reliability obligation. There is a suite of things that we can do to ensure that New South Wales uh, can uh, get the reliability that we need uh, whilst we build the new infrastructure that's going to be required to uh, provide us prosperity in the future. Minister Taylor's also expressed a few sort of interesting um, um, opinions about electric vehicles. Have you offered them a ride in your Tesla? I haven't. I haven't had the opportunity to uh, uh, ferry Minister Taylor around in my Tesla, but I'm sure if he got in the driver's seat like the Treasurer did the other day, he'd probably enjoy it. Um, I, I, I'm certainly... I think Minister Taylor, um, you know, he, him and I have a few different views, but we the one view that we do share is that we need to manage this transition in an orderly and sensible way, and we can't leave anyone behind. There is a huge economic opportunity to be had here by Australia. Now, how we take advantage of that, um, Minister Taylor and I, I think, are pretty much broadly in the, on, in the same space. Uh, we need to make sure that uh, we set ourselves up for the opportunities that are emerging, and I think that we can do that. And in fact, I think all the different states and territory ministers with different political persuasions are focused on how we can build a stronger and more prosperous country uh, for all of us. And uh, we may have different ways to get there, but we all want to get there. Well, maybe next when the lockdowns are, uh, are finished, you could drive your Tesla to a meeting in Canberra. You could charge in Goulburn at the Tesla Superchargers there. It's just down the road from Mr. Taylor's office, and you can give him a lift into Canberra. I'm sure. Giles, I will. I will tell you that uh, I will make that offer to Minister Taylor, and we will call in to your podcast uh, with him in the driver's seat, and he can tell you how much he enjoys uh, driving an EV. I'm sure he'd be delighted to do that. Just one final question: uh, We've got Glasgow happening in about five or six weeks. Are you hopeful on two counts? One, will Australia come around to deliver a meaningful target and not just the 2050 target, but maybe something stronger for 2030, which kind of everyone says is needed? And where do you think that the international community is going on this? Will Australia be able to keep up with the transition that seems ready to take off? Yeah, I, I think I think the federal government are moving in the right direction here. I'd like to see them go a lot faster. We've recently seen the federal government um, uh, make some very bold announcements when it comes to uh, working with our key allies and friends when it uh, comes to, uh, you know, protecting uh, our, our country, protecting our sovereignty and enhancing our defence capability. I don't think we should just limit um, working with our friends and allies uh, to those issues. I think we should support them on other issues that are going to, uh, that we're all facing, and the biggest one being climate change. So I've argued recently that we should lean into the moment, uh, uh, work alongside the UK and the US or the AUKUS, uh, the treaty, and extend it to dealing with climate change. And in doing so, uh, that will reinforce that 
societies like ours, um, uh, and not only the path to individual liberty, uh, but are responsible, are the only responsible stewards of prosperity, security, and common aspirations. And it will show that Australia is up to meeting the biggest challenge of our time, that is dealing with climate change. Mm-hmm. You've got you've got young kids. Are you confident that we're going to get it right? Uh, I, I, I'm, I don't think we've got a choice. I mean, this is not just about the type of planet that we're going to bequeath to our kids and their kids. It's about the type of economy we're going to bequeath to them as well. You know, the type of jobs they're going to enjoy, the type of prosperity that they will have. Uh, there is too much at stake for us to do nothing and be left behind. Uh, this is an uh, this is a debate about the type of country that we want to be. Do we want to be a prosperous, strong, and successful nation uh, that is regarded as a world leader, or do we want to be a pariah state, uh, a rust bucket state that is left behind? Uh, I know which path that we need to choose, and I know which path that I'm choosing for New South Wales. Well, um, Matthew Keane, thank you very much for joining the Driven Podcast today. And look, we look forward to uh, next um, the podcast, that the next time we talk to you, which hopefully will be in the front seat of the Tesla driving around Lake George within speed limits with Minister Taylor in tow or in the front seat. And uh, <laughs> that'll be a fascinating conversation. Uh, I'll tell Angus that I've already locked it in, so he can't, <laughs> he can't uh, weasel out of that one. And uh, again, Giles, thanks for what you do, your advocacy and continuing to talk about these really important issues that are affecting the very future of our nation. Thank you very much for joining us and thank you everyone for listening and we'll be back again with another podcast um, in the coming weeks. Bye for now. The Driven Podcast was brought to you by Solaray Energy. Solaray Energy has been designing and installing solar and storage solutions for electric vehicle owners since EVs first arrived in Australia. There's a smarter way to run your EV from Solaray. Visit solaray.com.au forward slash the driven.